Heard you this time. My text this morning comes from the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel, a passage I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and, and perhaps your familiarity will, will help you to get past the story and get into what the story is saying, saying to you. Luke writes, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? So the expert in the law responded, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, and love your neighbor as yourself. You answer correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and, and you'll live. But the fellow wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then Jesus looks at the expert in the law and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus told him, go and, and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, for your word in print and Holy Scripture. We thank you for the way that it goes right straight to our hearts. Though we tend to, to try to gloss it over and say, oh, this is, a, this is a story, an Aesop's fable, something from 2,000 years ago that, that has no impact, no bearing on the 21st century. Oh, Lord, forgive our pride. Open our hearts to hear your heart speaking to us. Open our minds to realize that we might wear different clothes, but, but we're just like those folks walking around in, in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And Lord, as you spoke to them, speak to us. In your name we do pray it, Lord. Amen. While my father was overseas serving as a naval officer during the, during the Korean War, my mother and my two sisters and I, we, we lived with my maternal grandparents in a little small house, 3538 Admiral Drive, in what was then a real small community, the community being North Charleston. Looking back, life seemed so, so easy back then. I busied myself roller skating and climbing China berry trees. 
I love serving on the safety patrol at school, you know, I was in the third grade, and you had that white web on there, you know, and you could put your hands up, and all those cars would stop out there for you. I also look forward to, to taking my dime to school to buy a victory stamp. Now, that was before some of y'all were walking around, so I'll need to unpack that a second. You know, there was a time in our country when we paid for things. The Korean War was going on, and, and all across the country, school children everywhere were encouraged to buy victory stamps. They were 10 cents a piece. And every, every classroom, the teacher had a book for each child. Your name was on that book. And, and any time you got a dime, you could come in, go to the teacher, and, and she had a special time set aside. Right after we said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, then, then if anybody had their dime and wanted to get a victory stamp, they came forward and gave the teacher the dime. She gave you the stamp, and she pulled out your book, and you got to lick that stamp and put it right in there. And when you filled the book up, then the teacher would send it off, and in a couple of weeks' time, you'd get a $25 war bond. That's a big deal, a big deal. Dime stamps were a dime apiece, and if you're really flush one day, you could bring a quarter and you would get three stamps, and you got to lick them three times and put it in there. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. If you didn't fill your book up, you got to carry it over for the next year, but, but if you didn't fill your book up, your classmates would give you a bad time. Because, see, everybody in the North Charleston area, Charleston was one of the largest naval bases in the United States at that time. So everybody that I knew, all of our neighbors, everybody was associated with the military in some way or another. And, and so when you bought a stamp, you were supporting your, your parents, your friends' parents, who were, who were supporting the country in the war. It was an amazing, an amazing time. My world extended far beyond the the white picket fence in the front yard and the chicken coop in the backyard. It extended out into, out into a neighborhood populated with all manner of folks. Their names escape me now, but, but that feeling of security that, that they engendered in me, it lingers with me still. Neighbors. Neighbors. Neighbors were easily identifiable as a child. They weren't relatives. They lived within walking distance. If they were old, you knew their faces. If they were young, you knew their names. They would feed you if you were hungry. They'd fix a broken toy. In short, neighbors, neighbors helped to raise you. After the war, my father retired from the Navy, and, and we moved several times. I grew older, and roller skates gave way to, to bicycles, and bicycles gave way to, to cards. Neighborhoods in, in cities like Atlanta, were never, they just were never quite the same. They seemed to pop, be populated with, with indifferent and, a, and anonymous folks. Folks who would convey with the expressions on their face and the way they carried themselves, they conveyed this, this silent message of mind your own business. See, mind your own business. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem would have been Israel's equivalent of Atlanta. Through Jerusalem flowed, 
road commerce from all around the Mediterranean basin and, and every conceivable type of person. And consequently, neighbors were an ill-defined group in that hub of, of the Roman world. In our text for today, Jesus is in Jerusalem. In fact, he's teaching and he's there in the, in the temple courtyard. And as he's teaching, the scriptures tell us that an expert in the law confronted him. And we need to understand that phrase, expert in the law. He would have been a religious scholar, a professional teacher, an interpreter of the Hebrew law, the written law, and all those oral kinds of, of commandments, those oral kinds of, of traditions that that written law had spawned. He asked Jesus a question that many folks back then, and indeed many folks today, wonder about. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question was a good one. Because the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call today the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures were, were a bit vague on that topic. The man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His, his question implied that, that, he, that he believed in eternal life. But, but his question also implied that he thought of heaven in the way that many of us do. He thought of heaven with a victory stamp mentality. He thought that, that heaven was like a war bond, a war bond given as reward to folks who have earned it. He thought of eternal life, thought of heaven as, as being a prize awarded to people who have worn themselves out doing religious things. I think that down deep, that expert in the law was like, was like many of us in another way too. I think under his question was this, was this subtle question there. And that what he was essence saying was, was Jesus, all right, let's cut through all the, all the fall drawl, all the chapters and pages in the scriptures. Cut, cut, let's cut to the chase. Let's get right down to the bottom line. What do I really, really, really have to do to inherit eternal life? What's the least I can get by and skim in the door? See. Isn't that what you want to know? Lots of you do. I want to get there, but I don't want the price here to be too big. What's the least I can pay for eternal life? See. Now, no doubt, the scholar was disappointed when Jesus threw the question right back at him, the expert in the law responded, you know, he, he said, well, to inherit eternal life, I believe you've got to love the, the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and, and you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, his answer was right on. He was correct, see. But he wouldn't leave it there. Instead, he asked another question, and this question really gives us an insight into where the fellow's coming from. He looks at Jesus and says, and who is my neighbor? 
with it. Who's your neighbor? You know, that's a question that we might well ask in our time. Because it occurs to me that relationships in, in our time have become complex and, and very guarded. We tend to look at other people with suspicion and, and some kind of inherent mistrust, it seems. And too, I think it's fair to say that sadly, many of our relationships have become really no more than self-serving means to an end. By that I mean, if the goal is to inherit eternal life, and, and loving our neighbors is how we achieve that goal, then like the scholar, we want someone to identify exactly who our neighbors are so that we won't waste time building relationships with, with folks who are not going to help us get to heaven. That's what he's asking. Who is, all right, tell me, who is my neighbor? I want to love the right person. Who's my neighbor? How do you determine who your neighbor is? Scholars want to figure it out. Again, Jesus did the unexpected. Because see, instead of giving a dictionary definition of a neighbor, Jesus drew a picture with words. And then he left the interpretation of that picture to the expert in the law and to you and me. A man of unknown background, he's been beaten and robbed and left to die by the side of the road that, that went from Jerusalem down into the Jordan River Valley down to Jericho. He's laying there beside the side of the road. Now remember the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that overhangs the story. See? Two devout religious folks, Jewish men thought to be on the fast track to inherit eternal life. They come on the scene, they see the battered traveler, but they don't stop. They're going their way. And then a Samaritan comes on the scene. Now the Jews thought that the Samaritans were so far outside of God's favor that they had absolutely no chance at all of ever inheriting eternal life. So here the Samaritan comes on the scene. What's he do? He stops. Goes over and takes care of the fellow. After drawing that word picture, Jesus asked, us, asked the expert in the law, he said, which, which of these three, the two religious fellows and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who had fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the answer was obvious, see, the one who had mercy on him. I think it was, they couldn't say the Samaritan. They didn't want to slaughter that, the one who had mercy on him. To which Jesus said, go and, go and do likewise. And, and in other words, if you want to have eternal life, then love others the way the Samaritan did. 
Now, after hearing that parable, I suspect that most of us do not want to be identified with, with the two religious fellows who, who didn't pay attention, didn't help the, the wounded stranger. We don't want to be identified with, with him. Instead, we want to think that, that we identify with the Samaritan. And that given that situation, we would respond in the way that the Samaritan did to the, to the battered traveler. We'd stop and dress his room, wounds. We'd take him to a place where he could receive further treatment. We stay with him there in the, in the emergency room until he, got, until he got his wits back about him. Then we make sure that he got, he got situated in a room, and, and then we go to the desk, and, and we tell him, you know, okay, don't, don't worry about the bill. I'll take care of his bill. And I'm going to be coming back to see him. And when I come back to see him, if, if more money is owed than what I gave you right now, I'll take care of that too. You don't need to worry about it, see. Now, I think we, we might want to think that we would be that kind of neighbor to the stranger. But honestly, would we? Would we? Would we put ourselves out that much for someone we've never seen before and probably won't see again? Would we? Now, I can't presume to, to know what you would do if, if you were to encounter that very same set of circumstances on your way home from the church this morning. I say that because, because I'm struggling with my own daily efforts to be a good neighbor in and around, around Bluffton. And I need to tell you that sometimes I am much more like those two different religious fellows than I am like the the model of good neighbor that Jesus gives us in the Samaritan. And I think, I think I've discovered a few reasons why. Now, perhaps my insights will help you as you aspire to be a, a good neighbor on the road of life. So let's get going. In discussions during the past several years, I have found that church-going folks in our diocese and, and way beyond that, I, I have found that they are, they are increasingly amazed by all that the Holy Spirit's doing in and through the Church of the Cross. They recognize the, the volume and complexity of our ministries to be stunning and, and that the gospel fruit being generated by this parish is, is undeniable. Praise God. Praise God. But here's the thing. Invariably, at some point in these conversations, I am asked to comment on the biggest challenge I'm currently facing. Most folks seem surprised when I admit that my biggest challenge is a personal sin. At times, I allow my passion for my ministry to consume me. You see, as the years of as the years have passed, I've become increasingly concerned that I may not have enough time left to accomplish all the kingdom 
visions that the Lord has opened my eyes to see. And, and, and that thought has given rise to a sense of urgency on my part, see? And consequently, at times I become so intent on what I'm thinking and where I'm going that I fail to notice the people around me. Has that ever happened to you? You get so focused on what you're doing that you don't notice the people around you. Recently, I read a story about a European explorer in Africa. He hired some African natives to help carry his equipment through, through the jungle, and they pushed hard. They, they pushed hard for, for three days. At the end of the third day, the porter stopped and they refused to go any further. When the explorer asked one of the natives why, why it is, well, what's going on here? He replied this way. He said, we have moved too quickly to reach here. Now we need to wait to give our spirits a chance to catch up with us. When I read that story, it just, boom, hit me right there. You know Why? because I could identify with that European explorer. See, with the, with the best of intentions, I push and I push and I push without realizing that in the process, I have put on spiritual blinders so as to avoid being distracted. And when that happens, I miss the serendipitous ministry opportunities that are part and parcel of being a God-honoring neighbor. Now, hear me, friends. Plans are never more important than people. Indifference to others is a sure sign that you are not walking with the Holy Spirit. Those who aspire to follow Jesus must know if you miss the people, you miss the point. Hear it again. If you miss the people, you miss the point. Several years back, two psychologists at Princeton University, John Darley and Daniel Batson, they, they did an experiment replicating Jesus' story of, of the Good Samaritan. Only they did it with seminary students there at Princeton. But not just any seminary students. They went through all the files, and they chose the seminary students who had expressed on their application that the reason they were wanting to go into ministry was that they had a deep and burning desire to help people. So they had the group of seminary students that they called from the whole student population, and they asked them to read and study the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then to write a sermon on it, and to be prepared to go to another building on campus to give that, to give that sermon. Now, what the researchers did not tell the seminary students was that they had hired an actor to play the part of the man who was mugged in Jesus' story. There was a walkway connecting the two buildings, and they positioned him beside the walkway. Had him all covered up with makeup and all, so it was obvious he'd been beaten up. He was moaning and groaning. Anybody on that sidewalk couldn't help but see him and surely couldn't help but hear him. Now, 
The seminary students didn't know that. They got them all together. They divided them up into two groups. To one group, they said, you're late. You need to hurry and get on over there. They're waiting on you. And then to another group, they said, you've got plenty of time, but you really, you really ought to start heading on over there. The result? Only 10% of the seminary students who were in a hurry stopped to help, while 63% of those who were not in a hurry stopped to help. Now, what conclusions did the psychologists draw? They said, well, it really, really didn't make any difference whether you went to seminary because you wanted to be trained to help people. It really didn't make any difference if you had just studied Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan and written a sermon on the thing. Then no, that made a difference. That the only thing that made a difference was whether or not you were in a hurry. Now, you know what? I'm ordinarily a, a compassionate fellow. But when I'm in a hurry, I can be indifferent to people who are around me. I apologize for that sin. I wonder, have any of y'all ever committed that sin? You know, in my studies of the gospel, it's, it's just so clear to me that, that most of Jesus' interactions with other people were totally, totally unplanned. Jesus had always had time for people. He was never late. And you know why? Because he saw other people as the focus of his ministry. You know, friends, being, being a good neighbor amounts to being like Jesus. Thinking that, uh, that I'm running out of time to do God's will has a whole lot more to do with my agenda than it does with God's agenda. Because you see, I know that every second of my life is in God's hands. And God's going to be all the time I need to do the things that he wants me to do. To do otherwise is sin on my part. And yours too. I often think back to, to that little neighborhood in North Charleston, back to those days and when we lived on Admiral Drive. And, and I think back to, to the neighbors that we had there. And, and then I think about all the people I've encountered since then, the places I've lived. And you know, at, at first blush, it seems like folks 70 years ago were a lot more neighborly than people are today. But when I back from that conclusion and I think about it, I realize that to do that is to ignore my own culpability. Because you see, I'm the only constant in the neighborhood that was back there and the neighborhoods that I've encountered. Maybe it's me who's changed. See, I've discovered that there's a very real correlation between the kind of neighbors we find and the kind of neighbors we are. And the kind of neighbors that we are is a function of our relationships with 
the Lord. The order of the commandments in the text for today is not accidental. If we don't love the Lord with every fiber of our being, there is no way that we're going to love others enough to put their needs above ours. No way. I want to start drawing this together a little bit with a question. You know, we, we listen to the story, and we think about it, and we say, man, how could we possibly love others as unselfishly and unconditionally as that Samaritan did? How could we possibly pull that off? So to answer that question, I want to quickly look back at, at Jesus' story. But this time I want us to focus on the person in the story that is most often overlooked. I want us to focus on the man who's lying beside the road, all beaten up and bleeding. Because you see, I believe that that is the role that we must master to inherit eternal life. It's not about the religious fellows. It's not about the Samaritan. We need to identify with the man by the side of the road who's fallen into the hands of the robbers. See, at some point, at, at some point, we've got to find ourselves laying in a ditch beside the road of life. Laying there, battered and bruised by sin. And as we lay there, all beat up by this world, we've got to realize that, that without some help, we're going to die. We've got to realize that we need a good Samaritan. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ, as, as, he, as he mercifully anoints our, our wounds with the balm of forgiveness, and he, and he wraps our, our wounds in bandages of grace, then what happens is that, is that Jesus, Jesus' Holy Spirit it transforms us. It transforms us into people like him. And it empowers us to get up out that ditch and to start following in Jesus' footsteps on the road of life. It empowers us to be good Samaritans like Jesus is. But see, the thing is, when we start following in Jesus' footsteps and acting like good Samaritans, the world doesn't like that. The world's going to react. And we're going to be beaten and bruised, and we're going right back into the, into the ditch again. And we'll become victims just like Jesus was. You see, Jesus' way is the way of the cross. And living for Jesus in the present reality of the kingdom of God will amount to continuously being crucified 
and glorified. The ditch and the roadway. Wounds and victory. It's the two-edged sword of Christian ministry. How do you walk it out? Only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we got this idealized picture of ourselves. We hear the story and, and we think, oh my goodness, surely we would, we would respond in this situation just, just, like the good, just like the good Samaritan. We'd stop, we'd drop everything we're doing and, and we would take care of the fellow. Bandage him all up, put him in our car, take him to the hospital. Sign the paper saying that we're responsible for all, for all of his bills. We change up what we're doing and, and come and visit him every day. And, and, and then when he got out, we'd get him in a nursing home and a place like that until he could encompass or somewhere so he could rehab. And, and we'd be right there. We're paying all the bills. And not only would we be, we'd be being a neighbor, but we'd really become brothers and sisters with him. Become part of our family. We'd like to think that we would be that way, Lord. But down deep, down deep in those dark places that we don't want to think about, we know that we are focused on ourselves. That our worlds are all about us. And there's no room in there for somebody else. And indeed, there's no room in there for you. Because see, we're the kings and queens of our worlds. Lord, you know that truth about us. Put us in front of a mirror, open our eyes to see that truth about us that we don't want to face. And then convict us that you created us for much more than that. You create us in your image to have a heart like yours so that we might walk the road of life the way that you did. Take away any fear, Lord, of, of being made fun of or being criticized or, or ostracized by the world. Keep our eyes focused on you and keep them moving from side to side so that we can see the folks in the ditches of life. Soften our hearts so that we'd reach out to them and be for them what you have been and are for us, a good Samaritan. In your name we do pray, Lord. Amen and, and amen.